This podcast is a presentation of Gateway Fellowship, Paulsville, Washington. Experience community, find hope. Check us out at gatewayfellowship.com. Um, we're wrapping up a two-week series, last week and this week, um, called Stories of God's Grace. And it was powerful last week as we gathered and heard the story of Darcy and, and Barry and then, and then Annalise. Um, I've said this last week, and I'll say it again today, we all have our junk, don't we? We all have our junk. And uh, we all have experienced in some form or fashion God's grace and mercy in our lives. But we set aside these two weeks some time ago so that you would hear from people that you're connected with, you know, often because each of these serve in, on, on, our, on our team, um, Darcy and Barry and Annalise and on our volunteer team. You're going to hear from one of our team members today. Lisa, come on up here. Um, Lisa Knopf. So... <laughs> Um, you know, I was sitting here thinking that there are times, and I, I, you know, I hope that no one thinks this, but I, I think there are times when, you know, people can get a, a weird, um, weird thinking about people who are on the stage, whether it's leading worship or speaking like that, like, yeah, I must have it really worked out, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm saying like, if you knew the stuff that we all deal with, right, and the junk that we all have, we're all, all benefactors of God's grace and, and his mercy. And so when we come together like we do, that's why I value and love community so much because we all come together like this and we all bring our imperfections and God takes that and uses that. It's a beautiful story, beautiful gospel story. Well, Lisa, um, she serves on our team as one of our assistants and she's all the... Uh, she edits all of our videos, and usually you'll find her sitting right up there where Michelle is sitting, um, um, directing the services. So she does all the back-end stuff and makes sure everybody's doing their thing and is connected with everyone, and usually comes up after the first gathering and tells me everything I did wrong and to do it right the next service. That's a little bit of an overstatement. Their guidelines. Their guidelines. A, little bit of over, a little bit of an overstatement, but yeah, it's, it's all good. So anyway... Um, but Lisa has an amazing story of God's grace. And I just pray um, that as we hear and as we listen, you just open up your heart and just let Jesus speak to you. So would you welcome Lisa Knopf today? Thanks, Tom. <laughs> well, good morning. So yeah, like Tom says, I'm Lisa, and I've served here for the last two and a half years, and it's been wonderful. I count it quite a privilege to work here and a privilege to be able to share my story with you this morning. Um, before we fully dive in, I'll give you a little background on me. Um, I'm the oldest of four, and I was raised in the kind of family that I think everybody wishes they could be a part of. Uh, my parents are incredible human beings who love and serve Jesus, and my three siblings, my brother and my two sister, one of whom, Kelly, is joining the online group this morning in Chico, California, morning sister. Um, they're among some of my most favorite people on this planet. Um, I'm also not a native Washingtonian. I am originally from Northern California, and I grew up in a small town called Paradise. And some of you may remember Paradise. Um, a few years ago, we made international headlines when 95% of our town was destroyed by California's most deadly uh, wildfire. And it was in the aftermath of that fire that I moved here to Paulsbo with my family. And um, I'm so thankful that this is where we have landed and where we are now. Um, when it comes to the chapters of my life, the fire is a pretty uh, hefty one. 
And when it comes to the stories of God's grace, his goodness is just drenched over our story of the fire. Um, But this morning, I'm going to share a different story. It's another one of how God has brought such beauty from a completely different set of ashes. So I have a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to get to it. Um, I'm going to take you back to September 16th, 2007. It was a Sunday, and it was the day after my 25th birthday. And I was sitting in church all by myself, and that's when I saw him. And we shook hands during the greet those around you time of the service, and I learned that his name was Brendan, and he served as a captain in the army. And the following Sunday, he was given the opportunity to share of his time overseas, work that his men were doing, I forget which country, but I was really excited to get to hear him share, and I was going to muster the courage to introduce myself to him afterwards, and then completely chickened out. So I did what any not-so-confident girl would do, and I asked the pastor for his email address, and I sent him a message after he went back to his base in Germany. And it only took a few email exchanges before we were on the phone as much as humanly possible and then chatting on Skype as much as we could. And my world very quickly became consumed with the captain. And he had a fascinating story. He was raised in a Jewish home with his his parents and his sister in a town about 45 minutes south of Paradise. Um, At a young age, he was diagnosed with high-functioning autism and that allowed him to graduate from high school when he was 13. He had a master's degree in computer science by 18. He was a smart guy. When he was 16, he came to faith in Christ, and as a result, was excommunicated from his faith community and his family for his choice to follow Jesus. He was taken in by a family that um, attended the church that he then started going to, And then they moved to Paradise shortly after he joined the army. Um, By the time he was 17, both of his parents had passed away. He had an estranged relationship with his sister Marina, who was a drug addict, suffered severe mental health issues, and last he knew, she lived somewhere on the East Coast. Like I said, his personal life was just fascinating. And his military life was just completely shrouded in mystery. Everything that he did operated at the most top secret, you know, level of clearance, and he basically had to operate as a ghost. Um, I only knew that he was stationed somewhere in Germany and that he worked with computers. And that was really what I knew. I mean, there were some things that he could share, but um, that was like the general gist. For the sake of our time this morning, I will tell you that it did not take long, and I fell fast and hard for this man. And I was soon mentally, spiritually, emotionally preparing myself to be an army wife. Um, Two months into our communicating, I finally had the opportunity to get the opportunity to know uh, Dave and Gloria and Victoria. They were the family that had taken him in. And it was great because I was finally getting to, you know, kind of learn a little bit more about him. And then I realized that some of the things that they were telling me wasn't really lining up with what he had told me. And some of this wasn't really that big of a deal, things like what color hair he had when he was a kid. But then there were some bigger things, like the fact that his mom was still alive. 
And with all of the mystery and all of the stories just kind of being slightly off or like out and out lies, my mom was really concerned, and rightfully so. And she was willing to call a red flag a red flag. And I didn't really like the idea of yellow flags, let alone red ones. So I just kind of took the position that between the high demands of his job and the fact that he, you know, had the um, Asperger's and were entering into this new relationship, he was still just kind of feeling things out. And that was just kind of where I left it. Fast forward to December, he tells me that he's coming home for Christmas. And I kid you not, it was like Mariah Carey's All I Want For You, or All I Want For Christmas Is You was just playing in my head 24-7. I was so excited. And he finally comes, and those two weeks were an absolute emotional roller coaster. It was just emotional whiplash and unmet expectations. We would have fun, like, going to dinner or little day trips. We would do, um, like, little Christmas performances that we would go to. But I was finding I was just mentally and emotionally exhausted, and I really couldn't put my finger on it as to why. At the end of his leave, he headed back to Germany, and I was almost thankful that his time had come to an end. Like, I was actually kind of ready for him to go. Um, and after that, we just kind of settled back into our long-distance routine. A couple weeks later, um, after we finished playing racquetball, my dad said, hey, come on over to the house. Your mom and I want to have a chat about the captain, and I'm thinking, all right, no problem. So I head over, and they sit me down, and they say, how is it that you know Brendan is who he says he is? Because we have reason to believe that he is not who he claims to be. And I was like, oh. I mean, I was initially a bit defensive, but I was absolutely willing to hear them out. Um, it had been brought to their attention that my mom was not the only one who had noticed some red flags, that there were people in our church, retired military, who knew how the army operated. And the things that Brendan was saying were happening, they knew is not how the army operated. And so they kind of enlisted the help of their people to kind of dig a little deeper, find out more about this guy. And they didn't know that anybody else was looking into him, but they all came back with the same information. Yeah, Brendan, he was in the army, but he was not a captain. Brennan was a specialist, which is nine ranks lower than a captain. Fun fact, it is a class D felony to impersonate an army officer. Actually, look that up. So if he wasn't a captain, much of what I knew about his military life couldn't be true. And I already knew that there were some pretty solid inconsistencies in the things that he was telling me about his personal life, but hearing that, it just, it ignited a frenzy in my heart. And I just, I had to know everything that I possibly could. So the next morning, my mom and I set out on a day of sleuthing. And we headed down to his hometown to see what we could find out. And I will tell you, we found out some, not a ton, but the most pertinent piece of information we discovered is we found an address for his sister in a phone book. So the next day, I met with Dave and Gloria and told them what those sources had shared with us and what mom and I had, had learned. 
And Gloria was just insistent that it had to be a mistake. It had to all be a cover because he's so top secret that the specialist, it was just the army's cover to protect him and keep him safe. Well, I, I posed the question. I said, I, that just doesn't seem to kind of line up. Like, so I asked the same question that my parents asked me. You know, do you have any proof that he is who he says he is? So she disappears, she comes back, and she brings me his certificate of commission when he was promoted to captain. Now this is a recreation, and I always joked that in about 10 minutes in Word and I could have done a better job, but this actually took me about half an hour, so now I know. Um, but if you'll notice, he actually misspelled the word commission. For the record, this is what a real certificate of commission looks like. But she still couldn't believe that he had the ability to be so deceptive, and she wanted to see the sister's house for herself. And so I took her, and we discovered that it was, in fact, her house. Now, I can assure you that Marina was not a drug addict, and she did not suffer from any mental health issues. I can tell you she was pretty hesitant to talk to us once we started inquiring about her brother. But I know that she could see the desperation in Gloria's eyes, and she was willing to talk with us. She told us that Brendan, he didn't graduate from high school when he was 13. In fact, he barely graduated at 17. He had never been diagnosed with Asperger's. They weren't Jewish. Um, he didn't have a degree. And the one piece of information that actually got Gloria to realize that Brendan had been leaving this double life was the fact that their father was also still alive. At this point, seemingly nothing that I knew about Brendan was real, and I was devastated. As I began to just wrap my heart around the reality that I had been deceived in, in, in so many ways, like I just, it, it was too much. And I realized that I had fallen in love with a man who technically didn't exist. And that does something to your heart. And it messes with your mind in ways that it is not designed to be messed with. Now, because Brendan had been given time to share from the platform at our church, we shared what we had learned with the pastors at our church. And they felt that it was prudent to seek direct confirmation from the army. And through a series of events, I was actually able to find the phone number for the office of his colonel in Germany. And our pastor was able to speak with him directly, and he was very interested in what our pastor had to say. He was able to confirm that Brendan was, in fact, a specialist. And then on the flip side of that, he wanted, you know, what evidence did we have that he had been claiming to be a captain when he was away? And I believe the saying goes, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. I wanted justice. And so I sent everything that I had. I had our Skype conversations. And now while I had no pictures of Brendan, I did have a picture of the uniform that he had altered where he put on captain's bars on his jacket and his beret. I had the fake certificate of commission. And because I was a silly girl in love, I had the first voicemail that he left me where he referred to himself as a captain. Now his sister was very eager to stay in the loop and she and I kept in close contact, and I was able to kind of fill her in the conversations between the colonel and, and our pastor.
But on February 7th, 2008, it was just after 10 o'clock at night, and it was she who called me with an update. She had just received word that her brother was dead. Later information from the colonel confirmed that Brendan was brought in for questioning with all of the evidence that I had sent them. And Brendan admitted to everything. He said, these were all the lies that I told. This is the double life that I had been leading for years. He wrote up a statement, and while they kind of deliberated as to what they were going to do and how they were going to proceed, Brennan was released back into the, you know, under the command of his, his commanding officer, and this was just before lunch. Uh, he asked to head back to the barracks so that he could grab something before joining the rest of the men in the chow hall, and he never showed up. When they went to go look for him, they found him hanging by a bedsheet in the sterile of the barracks. And I will tell you, it is like the broken pieces of my heart just shattered all over again. I was now not only grieving the loss of a man that I loved who wasn't even real, but now the loss of a man that I never had the opportunity to get to know. And in the days that followed, all I could do was pray for God to speak. I needed to hear his voice because I needed to know that I was gonna be okay because in those moments, I was not okay. But God was silent. And I would rally, and I would, I would tantrum before God for him to speak. And he said nothing. And it reached a point where I was just mixing the grief that I felt in the loss for Brendan with the frustration I felt in the silence of God. And it just felt like abandonment on both fronts. And I learned that healing is a painful process. It's essential and good, but it is incredibly painful. And I didn't know how I was gonna make it through the wreckage that was left in the wake of Brendan's death. And this morning, I'm not even touching on any of the guilt that I felt having been the one to provide the information that he was confronted with, all of that evidence. Things were very complex. And I quickly realized that I was gonna have to take a very proactive approach with my heart. I knew I was going to have to be intentional or I was going to be swallowed up by the grief and the sorrow. And I knew that bitterness, it was eventually going to follow. And that was not territory that I was willing to give up to the enemy when it came to my heart. But I didn't really know where to start. And so I just kind of started with making sure that any time I possibly could, I had worship music on. So one day, I jump in the shower, turn on my music, get in, and the song Better Is One Day comes on. You guys remember that song? And I get to the bridge, and I came absolutely unglued. The words go, my heart and flesh cry out for you, the living God. Your spirit's water to my soul. I've tasted and I've seen. Come once again to me. I will draw near to you. I will draw near to you. And I just stood there and I was just sobbing uncontrollably. I was just, I was frustrated that God was silent, and I, but I knew that he couldn't be wrong, that there had to be a reason for it. And so in that moment, all of my frustration just focused on Brendan and I just, all of my anger just unleashed on him. And I just, I screamed at God. I said, show him, show me to him right now and let him see the damage that he's done to me. 
And I'm not sure what kind of lows you've hit in life, but screaming at God to let a dead person see you shaking and sobbing in the shower, it's not one of my highlights. I will tell you, though, God still didn't speak in those moments. But as peace began to settle in my heart, and I knew that even if Brendan couldn't see me, because that's just not the way that it works, I knew that God could, and that became enough. As time went on, I was able to see progress being made, and the day finally came when I was able to do something that I hadn't been able to do for two months. I was able to open my Bible. You see, Brendan had deeply abused my spiritual life. He had taken advantage of it. I had been praying for things that had never happened, for traumas that he never experienced. I was praying for a future that never was going to be. And that left its mark not just on my heart, but on my spirit. And my time in the Word, it was a sacred space. And so when that was exploited, stepping back into that was like walking right back in to that place of deep violation. And I just didn't have the strength or the will to do it. But as I opened my Bible and as I began to read, what struck me first was just how incredibly patient our God is. Because he waited silently for those two months while I begged and I screamed to hear from him. But he knew that my heart had been shattered by lies. And he knew that I wouldn't trust what it is that he was telling me. And he knew the further damage that would be done if I reached a place where I felt that he was no longer trustworthy. And so God stayed silent for my good. It was for my benefit that he was quiet. But I tell you, once I got into his written word, the voice of God, oh, it came alive in a way that I had never experienced before. It wasn't until I got into his written word that it just, he roared. I could hear his heart for me in those pages. And when I began to doubt, I could see again in black and white the unchanging nature of who he was. And once I could trust those, those roars from his word, it was then that I could trust those whispers to my heart again. And I will tell you, there were some hard but gentle whispers that followed. I can tell you one of the perks of having your heart just completely shattered and ripped open um, is that the roots of all of the ugliness that had set up camp over the years, all of that was exposed. Because in the thick of all of this, I had been struggling with the fact that I had done everything right and yet I found myself in this situation. I had lived my 25 years to the very best of my ability, according to God's word, and I found myself in a situation like this. And being raised in the I Kiss Dating Goodbye, True Love Waits, purity subculture of the 1990s, I firmly believed that I would never experience heartbreak. I thought I was immune because I was doing things God's way. I didn't sleep with Brendan. I didn't cross any other moral lines in our relationship with him. I did things right, and I still got hurt. And there was so much self-righteousness attached to my anger in that. And what the Lord revealed to my heart in those moments was that doing things his way, it didn't make me immune from being wounded. It kept me from other heartache and other consequences, or not heartache, but it kept me from other consequences 
But his moral law was not a barrier to keep me from heartache, and that was a mind-shattering reality. But God didn't stop there. The Lord began to show me a richer glimpse into just how far his love, his grace, and his forgiveness truly reached. You see, the forgiveness of Christ, it had the breadth, the height, and the depth to cover every lie that Brendan had ever told and every ounce of pain that Brendan inflicted on me and those who loved him. And then God assured me that he had forgiven Brendan for hurting me and for breaking my heart. And I will tell you, in my brokenness, I paused for just a half a second at that truth. For just a moment, the ugliness of my own heart was revealed once more because my gut reaction to the abounding grace of Christ was opposition. But I'm yours, God, and he hurt me, and now he gets to be with you. That was my take. It wasn't pretty. But with great gentleness, he tenderly reminded me that, yes, I do belong to him, but there is no offense that the blood of Christ cannot cover. And in that moment, it was the last time that I was angry with Brendan. Now, I was still wounded, but I was no longer angry. Thankfully, God was not done working on my heart. And in that season, he gave me something really unique. He gave me visions. And and these weren't prophetic visions, but these were just more like really vivid dreams that showed me exactly what it is that God was doing. And a friend had challenged me to ask the Lord as I kind of journeyed through this process of healing, to ask God two questions. I was to ask him, how is it that you see me, and how is it that I see myself? And he answered the first question while I was driving, which was wildly inconvenient. I had to pull over. There was no getting through it, because he told me that I was his precious and cherished one. And then once I regained my composure, I asked the second question, But this time, he answered with a vision. You guys, Jesus walked me through the front door of Big Lots. You guys know Big Lots. They sell overpriced, like overstocked merchandise or it's damaged goods at, at discount prices. It's great. He walks me down the aisle, pretty ordinary stuff on the shelf. And there was a box that was sitting at the back of one of the shelves. And once I saw the box, I was no longer standing in the aisle next to him. I was the box on the shelf. I could look down and I could see down the shelf, things were kind of dusty and dark, and uh, I could see the back of the items that were in front of me on that shelf. And once the Lord made it clear that I was that box, I was once again standing with him in the aisle of Big Lots. He picked up the box and we walked out the door. We arrived immediately at another store. We were at Tiffany's, and we were in their finest showroom, and we were standing in front of one of their largest, most prominent, not-for-sale displays. And he opened it up, and he placed the box inside, and then he stepped back to admire it. So how is it that God saw me as his precious and cherished one, fit for Tiffany's? But how did I see myself? As overstocked merchandise at Big Lots. And I will tell you, Brendan's mistreatment of my heart 
It didn't diminish the value or worth that it held to my Savior. And that was a soothing balm to those shattered pieces of my heart. And God diligently worked on, on me for the next six months. And I realized that the gaping hole in my chest was suddenly getting smaller. And that brought a whole new territory of fear for me. Because I was afraid that I was going to ask a man to finish the work that God had begun and was his to finish. And I was desperate not to repeat giving my heart to someone who would not cherish it. And so I fiendishly shoved those pieces of my broken heart back into his hands. And the Lord gave me another vision. He showed me anxiously shoving those pieces to him. And they cut him. The heart that he once created whole now sliced his palms as I forced those shards back into his hands. I knew that it hurt him. Some of the cuts were very deep. But he didn't pull away, and he didn't refuse them. He felt the pain as I did, but he was tender with each and every piece. And those pieces of my heart were now covered in his blood, and I knew that they were safe there. The next few months passed, and I can't tell you how ready for 2009 I was. I knew that there was nothing to be redeemed out of 2008. I was ready for that ball to drop. And with about 36 hours to go, redemption began to poke its way out of the ashes of 2008. Now, the Lord still had the remains of my heart. So when a guy that I knew in high school sent me a message on, Facebook, on uh, MySpace, you guys remember MySpace? Um, I initially didn't think too much of it. I was like, okay, he asked me what I'd been doing with the last 10 years of my life, and frankly, nine of the 10 years had been great. Um, I went into some detail about Brendan, but not a ton. But the truly shocking part of our exchange was his reply. The level of pure, unadulterated honesty was jarring. He went into incredibly great detail, the dark and painful road that he took after high school that led him away from the Lord. And then the sweeping and grand measures that the Lord took to bring him back home again. He was a prodigal son in the truest form of the word. And he just laid it all out there. Now when you have been lied to, to the level that I had been, the truth becomes everything and to this day, to me, the truth is still everything. So when Dan not only aired his dirty laundry, but then gave me a tour through rows and rows of it, that had my attention. And I can tell you that level of honesty was far more attractive than top-level security clearance, you know, or a master's degree at 18. But at this point, God hadn't given me my heart back. And so... You know, when mutual sparks kind of started flying, I was like, oh, okay, all right, I'm not entirely sure what to do here. But God wasn't telling me to walk away. And so we started spending more time together, and things were progressing in our relationship. And when we reached a pivotal moment in, in our relationship, the Lord showed me one more vision in this journey of my heart being healed. You see, I was expecting God to repair my heart, give it back to me, and then I could give it to someone who would cherish it know what happened. The Lord showed me a glimpse into his workshop. 
but he wasn't just working with the broken pieces of my heart. On his workbench were the broken pieces of mine and the broken pieces of Dan, and he was fashioning something completely new. Those broken pieces, they fit together perfectly. And when God was done, he gave it not to me, but to us. And after that final vision, my heart never again ached from having been broken. And we celebrated our 12th wedding anniversary last month. <laughs> now, I am not saying that this is how God heals every broken heart. It is just the story of how God healed mine. What I do know is that the Lord is deeply invested in his craft of making all things new. You know, God simply spoke the stars into existence. But when it comes to us, he gets intimately involved. He gets dirty. He uses his hands. God is described as a potter, a refiner, a knitter. When it comes to the matters of our hearts, he is a master craftsman. He is not a conversationalist. And he is eager to redeem and restore broken hearts. Now, it won't be easy, and I can pretty much guarantee it's going to be a painful journey. But I can stand here today, and I can proclaim that should you choose to trust him with those broken pieces, they will be in good hands. They will be in capable hands, good hands, that are able to work in ways that you never could have imagined. And it'll be worth it. Because restoring broken hearts to bring about complete healing, it is his absolute delight. So we're going to play a song, and I'm going to ask you to just kind of sit and listen and absorb the words of the prayer that are sung. And my hope is that you know that this isn't just my prayer for you today. This is the prayer of every pastor, every person who serves in ministry here at Gateway. It's the prayer of Barry Darcy and Annalise who spoke last week and shared their stories of God's grace. It's the prayer of every small group leader here. And if you're not in a small group, would you find one? Would you? Because I can tell you that healing is a far more bearable journey when you walk it arm in arm with people who know your brokenness but are able to love and support you along the way. I know that he can do for you what he has done for me because he is the God of possible. I speak the name of Jesus over you In your hurting, in your sorrow I will ask my God to move I speak the name cause it's all that I can do In desperation I'll seek heaven and pray this for you I pray for your healing The circumstances would change I pray that the fear inside would flee In Jesus' name I pray that a breakthrough Would happen today I pray miracles over your life In Jesus' name In Jesus' name I 
Inside would flee in Jesus. Jesus.